welcome to Weird Studies, an art and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martel. For more episodes and to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. J.F. is a big D&D nerd, and I'm saying that in the nicest possible way. He's been playing for decades, and by his own account, many of the events that stand out most vividly in his memory, events that have even shaped his life, happened while he was on D&D campaigns. Most weeks, for several hours, J.F. and his friends sit around a table and agree to inhabit an elective consensus reality that they co-author. Now, maybe that sounds like fun to you, or maybe it doesn't, but at the end of the day, it's just a game, right? As you'll hear in the conversation that follows, there is no just about it. Games share a porous boundary with the everyday world. Things imagined in games can shamble into the daylight. Maybe not quite as they do in the Netflix series Stranger Things, but things can happen whose consequences spill outside the charmed circle of play. Or, contrarily, real life can get into the game. Play a game long enough, and at a certain point it's not even a game anymore. Say you're a claims adjuster who does Sailor Moon cosplay at fan conventions. Being Sailor Moon is your game. But if you never take your costume off, then who are you? Which is the costume, the claims adjuster or Sailor Moon? Which is real, and which is the game? We hope you enjoy our conversation. Just keeps yeah. going a little too long. <laughs> <laughs> So, I feel like I could do that, actually. Maybe I should bust out some custom laughs. Like, just, you yeah. know, just try something new. Like, we can workshop it a little bit. You right. Know? We could have the laughs on some kind of, like, shortcut key and just, like, cue it once in a while. Instead of... <laughs> you know, actually, though, it's funny. I have such a visceral hatred for people who use soundboards. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, I've I've been really getting into boxing as a fan. Like, for a long time, I wasn't really watching boxing. And so the first thing you do when you are, at least first thing I do, uh, when I'm kind of getting into something, is I look around to see if there are any good podcasts for that thing. And uh, for things like classical music, the answer is no. There's never any decent podcast for classical music, ever. But boxing has a couple of good podcasts. And there's one in particular where the guy's really smart. But I can't listen to it because he keeps hitting these fucking, uh, like, sound buttons. Right. Sound effects. Reminds me of those, uh, what do you call those one-man musicians who'd walk around with, like, a bass drum on their backs and, like, a little monkey and a... <laughs> yes, that's exactly what it's like. Just something about it. It's like, have some fucking pride, bro. <laughs> but uh, it's funny because today we're going to be talking about Dungeons and & Dragons and, and games and role-playing games. And, and that's one that's one type of podcast I've gotten really into is the Dungeons & Dragons podcast. Because podcasting has really kind of revolutionized 
the tabletop role-playing game scene because it's actually become over the last i'd say about five or six years it's become a spectator sport there are podcasts that are not just about dungeons and dragons but are actual dungeons and dragons campaigns that you can follow as you would no like, way as you would an hbo series or something like that and the, the good ones are actually really really good and i'm i'm more likely today to to follow uh, a dnd campaign that's being recorded than I am to watch an HBO series or a series on Amazon. This is partly because of my own idiosyncratic kind of interests. I'm a, I've been a D and D fan for a long time, but it's also, I find the storytelling is amazing because you, you literally, not even the people sitting at the table know where this is going to go. There's this, this, this kind of uh, wild factor in it, this chaos in it because of the dice and because of the, the number of minds collaborating on the story that make it so, such that you just don't know where this is going to go, but you're going to, you know, it's going to be a story and the better the players are, the better the story is going to be. So it's actually really, really fun to listen to uh, these podcasts. I've been enjoying it a lot. So who, who, who would you recommend to somebody well, wanting to just check that scene out? Well, the, the most popular one is critical role. And uh, it's basically a group of, uh, Los Angeles voice actors who got together and started a D&D game about five years ago and they played a five-year-long campaign with the same characters and that just came to an end last fall so I was following that kind of on and off it's a they play once a week and it's a four-hour long session every week and people freaking tune in for this week after week and uh, comment on it and blog about it and it's got this huge following I don't know what the numbers are but it's huge and then uh, that's one that I enjoy because the dungeon master, Matt Mercer, is actually is pretty good. And um, also the players are, since they're voice actors, um, it adds a kind of like a level of aesthetic sophistication to the game that's really fun because the characters have very distinct voices and personalities. So they're good storytellers. They're, they're not just good gamers. They're good storytellers. Yeah, we'll get into that, actually, because I don't know if a good gamer is the ideal, um, has the best set of skills to play D&D the way that, at least the way that, that I've enjoyed it. I mean, but there's a balance. Well, that's really, in actually, that's really interesting. And maybe that's a good place to start, because already we're throwing around terms like Dungeon Master, which I'm not going to assume right, that uh, right. uh, everybody listening to this is going to know what all that is. So we'll get to that. But like, as a sort of something to think about, like even uh, prior to talking about the specifics of D&D, like the question of what is a good gamer and what is a gamer or what's a gamer approach to any given task is kind of interesting. One thing that our listeners should know is the difference between JF and me can be probably crystallized in our respective choice of like our favorite game. And, uh, for, for JF, it's Dungeons and & Dragons, and for me, it's punching people in the fucking face. There's a lot of face punching in Dungeons & Dragons, but uh, it's it's all uh, make-believe, whereas you like the actual it's, sublim punching. it's more sublimated violence right. than boxing. So I should, I should point out to the... Because it's... Um, I should point out to the folks at home that I am a very slow, very middle-aged hobbyist boxer. One reason I'm pointing this out is there's a guy who's a mixed martial artist named Demetrius Johnson. And I think there's a good case to be made that he's the best mixed martial artist, like professional MMA fighter ever. Okay. He's incredible. 
in terms of his technique, uh, his ring smarts, his ability to make decisions on the fly, the ability to make adjustments, his athleticism, his gas tank, which is bottomless, like he just never gets tired, and I could just keep going on. He's unreal. Now, one thing about him, though, is that he's never really gotten much of a pop from the fans, and, you know, he he is an amazing fighter in every one of his fights. It's like a virtuoso performance, and yet the fans have never really kind of taken to him. And it's not his personality either, because he's actually a really interesting guy. So it's like kind of a question that you get in the MMA sphere all the time. Why doesn't Demetrius Johnson get over with the fans? Who knows? But I, my theory is it's because he is a gamer. He's a big gamer. He He's one of those dudes who streams on Twitch. You know what Twitch is? Yeah, yeah, of course, I yeah. Think it, yeah. Yeah, where, you know, it's sort of like what you were saying about Dungeons & Dragons. People will actually listen, tune into podcasts to listen to people do campaigns. Likewise, people will log on to Stitch to watch really good gamers, you know, fight each other, like, you know, in... You're so, talking about video in, games. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, sort of like fighting video games. It's interesting because, like, watching... Demetrius Johnson live streaming a game on Twitch, and they're always fighting games. He, he smokes guys just like in video games, just like he does in the ring and or in the octagon. And I was realizing the way he fights in real life is very much the way a gamer approaches a game. It's really analytical, mm-hmm. and it's not focused at all on like the grit of the encounter. It's not about like that moment where two wills contend and all of the stuff that fight fans and fight writers, fight journalists tend to romanticize. The the story. He isn't about that. What's that? The story. He's not about the story. Yeah. Yeah, like the the Yeah, he's not about the story. He's about um hacks. He's about like figuring figuring out a situation, figuring out what the hack is for any given situation. And there's a kind of efficiency and intelligence about his game that's really cool if you're into that sort of thing. But I think for most fight fans, it's not compelling because they want something else. There's something in that gamer approach to fighting that is just, I don't know. Right. It's not It's not what people are after. And I'm wondering if that has something to do with... Like what you just said about like gamers don't make good D and D players. Yeah, well, or maybe I'm putting words in your mouth. No, I mean, absolutely. That's not exactly no, what that's you said, that's but... a great. No, you make a great, great point. Actually, I was reminded like one of my other um, uh, gaming passions is chess, and uh, and I, I'm not a I don't follow. Wait, you play you play chess? I do. Yeah, yeah, I play chess. No, I didn't know that. And one, uh, I, I haven't been following the uh, chess scene so much. Uh, I just don't. I, I don't know. I just don't run in those circles. And it's such a solitary thing for me that uh, it never occurs to me to go check in on who's winning and who's the champion or whatever. Uh, but I did see that documentary about um, Kasparov playing against Deep Blue. Uh, did you did you ever see that? Uh, I don't remember what the title I was. I didn't see it, but I heard about it. Yeah, it's it's a good documentary. And there's that weird feeling, that weird bittersweet moment where the engineers from IBM, I think it was, beat Kasparov. And yeah, they built a machine that that vanquished the world champion. And in a sense, it's a victory because the machine is definitely a better chess player than Gary Kasparov. But uh, on the other hand, it's a defeat for for what chess was, which was a platform for 
clashes of personality for it's a, it's a way to translate conflict into a little world where that these two people these two characters can affront one another with their particular styles and stuff so like the, the ultimate gamer is always a machine which is why it's it's interesting and very apropos hmm. to bring in video games because a gamer plays to win and i i believe yeah. and, and maybe that's maybe in sports the situation is different but in games especially in a game like dungeons and dragons i mean in chess of course you want to win but you don't want to cheat. You don't want to hack. You want to win as yourself. You want you. You want like I want JF Martel to win the game. I don't want some. I don't want this like a series of tricks that I've read in a book to win the game for me. That's just you know what I mean. Like there needs to be a kind of infusion yeah. of the self in the game for it to be to for me to feel like it's something that's worth doing. Because I mean, anybody could learn openings at chess and uh tactics and and just go through all the possibilities and kind of just analyze their way to becoming a decent chess player but there's something about the kind of raw suchness of just a person trying their best in the moment and dealing with each problem as though it were new there's something about that type of sportsmanship that i really dig that's something you've seen like Mm -hmm. someone like muhammad ali who was probably i'm not a huge I, i i know almost nothing about boxing which is why i bring up muhammad ali but when you see him, there's more going on than just a good boxer. There's a whole story oh, yeah. there. There's a poetry to it. There's an aesthetic to how he played, to how he fought, that are just as um, important, I think, when we consider him as a, as a as an athlete as any other aspect of his of his game. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Yeah. Uh, and this one reason why you know people, fight fans love to argue about like who's the greatest of all time. G-O-A-T, the GOAT. You hear this all the time, and it irritates me, actually, because I don't think in any complex activity like boxing or like playing chess or or playing music, I don't think there's ever a greatest of all time because to suppose that there's a greatest of all time is to reduce the game, whatever the game is, to a single scale of achievement that's sort of like measurable in some way. Right. And... There's always more going on. I mean, just as you said, there's always more going on in a game than just win-loss. It's the encounter of combatants. And the combatants can be actually winging punches at each other, in which case the, the violence of the conflict is relatively unsublimated. It's often said that the difference between boxing and, say, basketball is that if you throw a basketball through a hoop and get two points, that means something because the rules state what it means. Whereas in fighting, like, getting punched in the face always means something, right? Right. Um, So the violence in fighting is, like, much less sublimated. But even so, whether you're talking about chess or whether you're talking about boxing or whether you're talking about chess boxing, which, by the way, is a thing that exists. um, Yeah, I know. I've heard about it. (laughs) It's like a combination of chess and boxing. Um you know, there's always some contention between two wills. Right. And to reduce a game simply to the win-loss record, to reduce a game simply to the vector of like, I don't know, technical accomplishment, to assume that you can be the greatest of all time, that we could calculate that according to certain rational parameters. I think it's badly mistaken. There's different people who are great in different ways, but Muhammad Ali is the greatest, it's almost, you can imagine, the little TM, little trademark right. next to the, the term. But 
people call him that, say he's the greatest because exactly what you said. Because on the one hand, like if you're into the technique of fighting, watching classic Muhammad Ali is going to give you it's going to set the banquet for you. You'll have a richly laid table of technical stuff to geek out on. But there's always a story. You know, his fights are always stories. Like, yeah. there's a story around them, like the rumble in the jungle. There's a whole big story around that that involved even geopolitics. But each fight has a story. You know, there's, and the story is the contention of these two wills that meet in the ring. And that's the kind of thing that people wax romantic about. And it's, and maybe that's kind of gets hacky and played, but like at the same time, it's getting at something real. And, you know, leaving aside the question of the fight game, it's interesting to me that the, for you, the same kind of concern comes into play when you're thinking about D&D. Yeah. Yeah, it does. And, uh, but just and we kind of got ahead of ourselves in a good way there because I think we, I was hoping to get to where we're, we are at now. Um, I think that doing it backwards. That's that's fine. Uh, yeah, start start with the conclusion. <laughs> it's a bold move. It's like a gamer. Let's 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 just create categories. Let's call them gamers and players. Okay, a gamer games. Nice. A, a gamer games. The gamer wants to win. So for him uh, or her, the gamer will come to a table and say, "How can I win this? How can I beat?" How can I beat the system? How can I beat the, this, the, my opponent? The player wants to play, and the spirit of play and the spirit of winning aren't the same thing. And uh, I mean, we tell this, we say this to kids all the time. It's not about winning, but it's true. Like a good hockey game. When I go see a hockey game, a good hockey game isn't a game where my team wins ten to one or ten to nothing. A good hockey yeah. game is a game where I had highs and lows, where I was afraid, then I was relieved, then I was anticipating. It's a game that has this all these peaks and valleys of emotion. In other words, there's an aesthetic event going on, a story, and that's what makes a good yeah. game good. Not that your team won. <laughs> it's just like it's it just yeah. I'm not, you know I'm not a big sports yeah. guy, but of, to of me course, it seems obvious. Your team winning is the it's more than the cherry on top. I mean, that's the salt that that seasons the meal. You know, um, yes, because win, the, winning is Im, winning is important, but we're talking about like the manner of winning. Exactly. Right? Not only that, but I think winning is important, and I think that the idea that winning is important without that, there's no reason to play. So you need the idea that winning yeah. is important for the magic to happen. But so there's it's like it's like an it's like if you um, it's like an art. You know, you'll have a writer and he wants to write like, um, uh, I'm trying to think of a semi-didactic. Okay, I always go to the same goddamn examples, but I will again because I can't think of anybody else. Dostoevsky. Dostoevsky is a Christian, right? And he wants to write uh, He wants to write his faith into his novels. The difference between Dostoevsky and a kind of like proselytizing evangelical writer who's only writing in order to commit converts is that Dostoevsky puts his doubt and his faith, everything's in the book. So like, in a sense, the idea that he wants to show people what he's seeing in the world, he wants to share his vision, is just the excuse for the book, which is something that transcends him completely to come into being. Right. It's like hmm. it's like, yeah, of course, if you have two hockey teams confronting one another, they each have to want to win. But what makes it memorable isn't uh, whether your team wins or loses, but the magic that came out of this clash of forces, which was this was these uh, two teams wanting to win. Like there's there are two levels, right? 
It's the same thing in, in certain works of art. You'll have the, the didactic level. What's this author trying to do? What's this author doing here? And then there's the aesthetic or imaginal level, which is despite what he tried to do, he created this and this transcends him. Mm. And that's what makes art art. And that's what makes a beautiful hockey match or boxing match a kind of art, artful event is that particular transcendent imaginal quality that comes out of this it's like the beauty of war right i it's Hmm. not a popular phrase probably today but the battle the two armies confronting each other affronting each other and clashing and then there's this uh, poetic this horrible poetic thing that happens beyond it that transcends the experience of all the participants and creates this this new thing like uh, the, the trojan war for example or something like that there's there's, mm-hmm. there's there's just that other level and um just to get to dungeons and dragons the, the thing about dungeons and dragons the thing that makes it particularly problematic for gamers is that dungeons and dragons uh in, in dungeons and dragons there are no winners it's not a game where anybody wins ever it's not designed that way so that's the first thing that would distinguish dungeons and dragons from other types of well i can't call them board games because dungeons and dragons has no board but tabletop games so if you're come into D as a gamer uh it's very strange because you're trying. You don't know who to beat to win because there's there's just no winning. Okay, so I'm. Very, I'm not totally clueless about D&D because my son plays D&D and I always ask him about his campaigns. But like, I'm pre- I, I, my level of knowledge about D&D is probably uh, somewhat equivalent to your knowledge of boxing. So explain it to me. What if I if I were to go to uh to play a game of Dungeons and Dragons, what would I see on the table? Like, what would I see in the room? What what kind of uh, playing? accoutrement okay to our people toting okay um what you would it's a good way to start uh okay so you need i I think you need a table i've tried to play without a table like sitting on couches and stuff and it just doesn't work and that'll get us to uh, one of the points i want to make which is that D and an evolution of the seance but um the 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 ta- the, you'll have a table and people sitting around a table. At one end of the table, usually at one of the yeah, one of the heads of the table, you'll have the dungeon master, who will have before him usually, but not always, uh, what's called the dungeon master screen, which is basically a kind of like three-paneled triptych kind of like screen that that hides his notes from the players, because the dungeon master knows all and has to keep his information to himself or herself, and the players play in that outside of that so so there's a screen Hmm. uh on the dms on the dungeon master side of the screen you'll have his or her notes some scratch paper and some dice and the dice are polyhedral so there 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 are four-sided dice uh six-sided dice eight ten twelve and twenty this is kind of one of the trademarks or one of the 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 iconic elements of D&D is these funny dice that, that the players use so on the other side of the DM screen, you'll have the players and they sit together and they each have a character sheet that records their particular characters, abilities, weaknesses, etc. So each player plays one character and that's about it. 
So, and then the way the game works simply is that the dungeon master will describe something and the players say what they do. So, in other words, uh, the players control their characters. They control their characters' actions. They control their characters' thoughts, feelings, and words. But the dungeon master controls the entire universe from the weather to the other people in the world to the animals to everything except for the players. Basically, the the dungeon master creates the world and the, the players bring this world to life through their actions. And that's the way the game works. So you'll go, it's hmm. a back and forth, it's a conversation. So the dungeon master might describe how the characters, you have to start somewhere. So the characters might start in a tavern, that's the classic starting point. They're all young and eager and they're looking for adventure in this big dangerous world. And the world might be a world that the DM created, a whole cloth kind of made up his own game world. Or it could be a world that you can pur- you can purchase game worlds for the game. And then uh, they'll start in a tavern. The dungeon master will describe the surroundings, describe what's going on, and then maybe have some kind of instigating event like a a rain-soaked old hermit comes in and starts eyeing the crowd looking for looking for somebody and then sets his gaze on the adventurers and approaches them holding a, a handful of coins. And, of course, the hermit wants something from the adventurers. He's looking for people to do something for him. So then the characters can engage with this hermit and then can, it can lead to an adventure. And then you play out the adventure and then the characters might get treasure from the adventure. They level up, they become more powerful. And then over time, they go from start, they start as little, almost like little peasants and they become eventually heroes of the realm. That's the kind of like shape of the D&D campaign, the classic shape of it. And uh, I don't know if that gives you a good idea of how it's played, but... um, Yeah, that does. At different points in the game, you'll encounter challenges. So a challenge could be like you need to pick a lock or you need to scale a wall or you need to defeat a bunch of goblins that have waylaid you on on the forest road or whatever. And then that's when the dice come in. There's a whole system for... Uh, the resolution of various types of challenges. So you'll roll dice and your dice will be modified by your particular powers or abilities. If you're a magic user, you can use magic, cast spells. If you're a, a paladin, you can use your divine smite to like, you know, it, it, there's all kinds of powers and, and, and attributes your characters can, can, your character can have depending on how you design them. And that will, the dice at that point will resolve various actions that you or non-player characters, which are the characters controlled by the dungeon master, uh, commit. Okay, so like in an example that you were just using, like uh, a hermit approaches your table. Right. I'm assuming here that the hermit, like that's the dungeon master. Controlling the hermit, um, yeah. Controlling the hermit, that the players are the ones sitting around the table. But like the dungeon master, okay, put it this way. Something that took me a while to understand is how different the role of the dungeon master is from everybody else. Because I'm used to thinking of games, like board games, like Monopoly. Everybody is doing the same kind of action. Yeah. Like some people are doing it better than others, but but there's no difference in role. Whereas in Dungeons & Dragons, the DM is like... Well, you can't have a Dungeons & Dragons campaign without a DM. The DM is like the critical... Yeah position if you don't have a dm you don't have a world and i asked my son about this and i was like so do you ever dm he's like well i can but i don't really like to because i don't think i'm that good at it um at least i think he said that to me mm-hmm. uh <laughs> i'm uh, nicholas i'm sorry if i'm misquoting you you know i know with his circle his D group it's always pretty much the same guy who dms yeah because he just is good at it and my understanding is that you always dm in your group 
I've been DMing almost exclusively since I was like nine years old. Huh. But so the thing that's interesting, well, one thing that's interesting about the position of the DM and then the position of the players, I mean, although the DM is like, I guess you would say the, the most critical player, the most important player at the table, nevertheless, everybody is going to be getting maybe a certain equivalent, I don't know, about equivalent amount of satisfaction out of it. It's just like people are doing different roles. Right. Um, and the, how to put this, this is, um, this is something I've been thinking about actually as I've been thinking a lot about chance mm -hmm. and thinking about like C-H-A-N-C-E, not chance, C-H-A-N-T-S. Oh, gotcha. Uh, chance, yeah. like roll of the dice chance, right? Right. And I've been reading a book. I just finished a book by Jackson Lears called Something for Nothing, which is a cultural history of luck and kind of cultures of luck, mm. or cultures of chance in America. And it's a really interesting book and beautifully written. And I strongly recommend anybody interested in the subject, pick it up. Interesting. And one story that Lears is telling is of a a style of very kind of mainstream American, almost like the authoritative voice in American life, which is always leaning heavily on an idea like what happens in your life happens as a result of your own initiative and hard work and the decisions that you make. And so this can manifest, for example, in like a way of thinking about economics and, and society such that people who are poor are poor because they brought this on themselves because they're stupid or lazy or whatever. And the idea of like, no, some people are poor because then it's the breaks. Like that just happens. Like Lears is sort of taking aim at a, a certain way of thinking that assumes somehow that everything that happens in our lives is a result of some choice that we make or some intentional action. And when he's talking about chance, he's really talking about something much more than just sort of a random generation of numbers by throwing dice or something. He's talking about really the entire range of things that befall us, things that can happen or manifest in a human life that are not under anyone's control. What, what, um, what the Romans and, called fortune, essentially. Right. And that's more than just what we mean by chance. And I think at some point in the future, we should do like a show on chance and, and sort of crack this one open because it's really interesting really interesting question. But it occurred to me, like, I'm trying to come up with a name for all of the different faces of chance or the different faces of fortuna, you know? Right. And and you and I have, have gone back and forth on this in our email exchanges with one another and sort of thinking, like, actually, you know, fortuna has more than one face. There's, like, the face of just random happenstance, the the, the cold, uncaring, meaningless universe that reveals itself when someone you love dies in a car accident or something like oh, that. My favorite example, my favorite example was the guy in India a couple of years ago who was the first human in recorded history to be struck by a, a meteorite and killed. <laughs> yeah, oh like God, I just yeah. keep picturing yeah, that. That's pretty much a perfect example. Yeah, yeah. A meteor traveling for millions of years through space, hurtling itself through the cosmos. And this guy like is walking on, on that particular path at that moment. And that those two events suddenly come together in the most significant way for him. And yeah. in a way that's yeah. completely uns insignificant or, or that points to absolute insignificance for the rest of us, because it says shit, man, like, you know, yeah, so that type of cold, blind, 
uh, cruel, almost indifferent chance. So that's yeah. the first type. Okay. But then there's Keep also going. Lady Luck, who you know the uh, the bell of every gambler. Every gambler is constantly flirting with Lady Luck, trying to catch Lady Luck's eye. And for them, chance wearing the aspect of Lady Luck, that's like something really, really different, right? That's somebody who is alternately favorable and unfavorable according to whims of her mood. So not quite the same thing, right? And you can say like, certainly when Lear's towards the end of this book, he starts talking about the unconscious as... Mm -hmm part of this realm of what he's calling chance. He's talking about artists who are no longer really thinking of their art as being a manifestation of their will, but are much more willing to, for, for example, through practices of like automatic writing or automatic drawing, uh, are willing to let their artistic expression come from someplace that they're not controlling. Right. But it's not quite, but it's not quite right to say that that's chance, at least in the sense that we normally mean that. So I've been trying to think of well, like what's a good word for just all the stuff that happens in our life that we don't control. And uh, I, 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 I just sort of think about the title of a actually a really great little German experimental film called The Way Things Go. I just think of it as The Way Things Go. Anyway, sorry, this is like a really long, it's taking me a long time to get to my point, perhaps about- not untypically. But where I was saying is like the DM is in charge of the way things go. Right. And the players are in charge of themselves. Like you have two different fundamental forms of how things can happen in the universe. The stuff that you intend to do and the stuff that in one way or another happens to you. And it seems to me that what's something that's interesting from my, you know, like outsider-y perspective, like I don't really know that much about Dungeons and Dragons, but it does seem to me that one really cool thing about like the design of it is that the DM is the master of the way things go and the players are the master of the things that they determine. You see what I'm saying? That's a great way of putting it, yeah. And the, the but the strangest thing about D and D is that the players, as insignificant as their characters might be in the grand scheme of the cosmos, as the as the dungeon master conceives it, make a huge difference. When we sit down, like I, I started playing again when I moved back to Ottawa after we Leslie and I had kids, and I'm I'm, I'm enjoying it now more, more than ever. Like I'm 40 years old and I I'm a diehard Dungeons and Dragons player to the detriment of other aspects of of my career or uh, so it's like <laughs> I'm trying to find a way to monetize this but anyways the the um the what I love about it is that I'll have a story figured out so I'll know what the NPCs which is what we call the non-player characters the the characters that the players don't control I know what they're doing I know what what this or that villain is up to. I know what's going to happen if the players don't do anything. This will happen then. That'll happen then. This is what it's, you know, I know what the forces at work are tending towards, but I don't know where the story is going to go because the story isn't written by me. It's written by the players' actions in that world. So it's, hmm. it's, it's as, so there's, it's not a control thing being the DM. Like you, uh, some DMs might look at it that differently, but the way I look at it, it's that you're enabling a world to come into being, but the world only comes into being with the player's actions. So it's a metaphysically, it's a very interesting model. Yeah, because it's balanced. Because because you know, it's so easy to fall into this thing where like everything that happens happens for some determined reason, 
And then in the 20th century, you have these people, you have artists, um, thinkers, scientists, all kinds of people who are running away from that idea. And they're like, no, everything that happens is out of our control and our sense of control is a thin veneer, an illusion. And it seems to me that both points of view are somewhat unbalanced, that actually what the universe presents us with is this play of the way things go and the way we make things go. It's both, and it's this dynamic interplay that gives richness to life. is not about storytelling as much as it is about world building i think or it's about both in fact storytelling is the key element of world building but what what you do okay so matt mercer that dungeon master i mentioned earlier in an interview i listened to recently mentioned a book that he read i couldn't track it down in which um uh, a neuroscientist was talking about the brains of role players and and how when people remember a Dungeons and dragons game they don't remember sitting around a table. They remember the events in the story. And I, I can attest to that. I don't, I, mm. I have vague memories of sitting at this or that table and playing, but I have very vivid memories of, uh, you know, my friend Stefan's gangrel vampire escaping Chicago as it burned because of the actions of a few elder vampires who'd awoken from an ancient crypt. You know, like that to me is, mm. and, and when I, when I meet my friend Steph, we, we will reminisce about these events. Like it's like, we must look completely insane when we're talking at parties. Cause we'll be talking about these absolutely fantastical events. We feel like they happen to us. They're part of our uh, recollection of the real because we live the story together. Uh, and it's not like remembering a movie because we were in it. You know, I was in it in spirit because yeah. I was running the game. But he was he was a character in that story. And we can think about these moments. There's something about the, the world building aspect of Dungeons and Dragons and of all role playing games that make it a very interesting subject of study for someone interested in metaphysics and also someone interested in, in, in the things we're interested in, in, in the weird, in, um, in art, in philosophy. It's like a gold mine that has just barely started to get tapped, you know? There was a really good book written a few years ago called Dungeons and Dragons and Philosophy, Raiding the Temple of Wisdom, edited by John Coburn or Cogburn and Mark Silcox. There's a moment in the introduction where they write, whatever eccentric muse should be given credit for inspiring D&D's original inventors, we think that this much at least is clear. The game's swift ascent to worldwide popularity in the 1970s and 1980s represents the most exciting event in modern mass culture since the invention of the motion picture. So that's a huge statement. And it was the first time I that's saw it in claim. print. It's a big claim, but it's something I felt very deeply. And you know how... But So let's, let's be clear, though. Uh, D&D has long been associated with what until recently was not mainstream at all geek culture nerds and you know the people who played D&D mm -hmm. were the people who couldn't get dates and all that stuff and there's there's a bit of truth to that the way that it that it evolved and and it kind of grew out of the 
almost the kind of like the uh, the bargain bins of culture you know the kind of like dime fantasy novels and the pulp stuff and it, it grew out of that and out of war yeah, gaming like conan the barbarian yeah, right that kind of world that sort of thing. not saying that like it's a bad thing but yeah it really comes out well, of that world well those things aren't considered bad anymore but for a long time they were they were considered kind of like childish and juvenile now they've become high culture yeah. and thanks in part i think to D D. Philip K. Dick in his uh, exegesis writes, um, the truth always, something like the truth always reveals itself first at the trash stratum. So the stratum mm. of trash in a culture is where the new thing will come up. And then it'll take time yeah. for it. But just like when movies, motion pictures started, they were seen as kind of like a, a vaudevillian kind of sideshow curiosity at best, and then became this yeah. art form. I think that uh, role-playing games are on their way to becoming something like that, or they may not, but they have that potential. Well, when you say they're on their way, does that suggest that the games themselves are evolving towards greater complexity or that people are slowly, after several decades of these games existing, beginning to unlock hitherto, I don't know, untapped depths or unplumbed depths of the game? I think it's a mixture of things. I think, first of all, D&D evolved out of wargaming. So really, really complex tabletop miniature games that, that men especially would play in the 50s and 60s and 70s, kind of recreating famous battles or, or you know, mm. really, really tactical games. So that's, that's what Dungeons & Dragons evolved from. Gary Gygax, the um, accredited creator of Dungeons & Dragons, he worked with a guy called Dave Arneson, and they worked together to, to create D&D. They were huge war gamers. But what they wanted was a war game where you played one soldier. And you would design that mm. soldier the way that in the other games you design an army or a contingent of, of troops. So it started off very, very complex, very tactical, tons of charts and stuff. And what's happened through through time is that the, the systems have actually simplified to and to facilitate storytelling. So at first it was more about getting through the dungeon, killing all the monsters, counting up the loot so you could buy better weapons. It was almost like a what video games, video role-playing games are pretty much that to this day. Mm-hmm. That's called dungeon crawling and role-playing parlance. But then it evolved more into storytelling. So when the game, a game like Vampire the Masquerade came out in the 90s, in which you play a vampire that's part of this underworld, secret society of vampires in the modern world, it that game was very much about storytelling. There's been a big debate in the role-playing scene about that ever since, about what role-playing games are and what they're... But the tendency has been to push towards more and more storytelling, less and less tactics, and that's attracted a whole new demographic to the games. First of all, you know, it's not just tactically obsessed left brain, you know, geeks that want to play. There's all kinds of people that can play. So that's been a part of it. The other thing is that the perennial problem with role-playing games is that they're only as good as the game masters. So your dungeon master in Dungeons and Dragons or game master in other games will determine the qual- largely determine the potential quality of the game. A lot of people just never met another game master, so they didn't know how to run the game. So the advent of the internet, of blogging, of podcasts and all that stuff has enabled game masters to watch each other work and understand and kind of discover new ways of doing stuff. And that's making the game evolve, too. So it's technologies like podcasting, for example, that are really changing the game. I think so. Yeah, definitely. It's definitely raising the bar that's really interesting. for a lot of groups. We could talk about D&D, but I, I, I think we should talk about what this means to our, 
our podcast to Weird Studies. Yeah, what's it doing on the we, Weird Studies yeah, podcast? We kind of touched on that when we talked about when you were talking about that, that kind of interplay between fate and chance and all that. But there, there are so many mm-hmm. things about D and D. Like D- Dungeons and Dragons is a repository of op- of beautiful obsolete ideas. So one of the the great chapters in the original game books, and they remain in the game books to this day because it's gone through several editions now, is the map of the planes of existence. So the world of D&D is kind of divided up into different planes. There's the material plane we inhabit, but then they've brought in all kinds of things from like theosophy, like the astral and ethereal plane. Or there's the there are these two opposite echo worlds to the materials. So there's, there's the Shadowfell, which is the land of the dead, and then the Feywa, the land of the fairies. And then beyond that, you have the inner planes, which reflect the four elements, so fire, water, earth, and air. And then beyond that, you have the outer planes that the, the realms of the gods. So it's, it's really like, the, it's just kind of this kitchen sink repository of all these old mythological ideas. Like I was introduced to the occult through Dungeons and Dragons. Hmm. It's also filled with mythological ideas. So there's this classic book called Deities and Demigods, which is basically they gave statistics, game statistics to all these gods from various myth, myth mythological systems like Odin or Thor or Zeus. So it, as as a as a gateway into the occult, uh, you know those crazy '80s evangelical Christians who thought that, that their kids were turning into Satan worshippers when they played D and D weren't they weren't completely wrong. <laughs> That's one of the reasons I wanted to discuss it because it has a very strong occult component. That's there, even if you're just mm. playing in the most lighthearted way. Well, okay, so I seem to recall there was a really just like a schlocky exploitation movie from the 80s about Dungeons and Dragons. And I don't think I saw it. Or Tom if I did, Hanks or, one? I, I, don't know, I don't know whether I saw it or whether I'm just going off of other people's description of it. If I did see it, I saw it in the 80s. And, you know, I have a bad memory at the best of times. But my understanding is that the plot was basically that it starts off as guys playing a game. And then the game starts spilling out beyond, well, the... The, the boundaries of a game, it, it becomes real life. And now that I'm saying that, that's basically what happens in Stranger Things. I mean, as a cultural event, Stranger Things must have done a lot to kind of put D&D a little bit more on the front burner. Oh, yeah. And that's kind of, that's sort of the occult thing, right? It's the idea that, you know, what's magic? Magic, if for all of the many, many definitions possible, like everything else, as Nietzsche says, only that which has no history can be defined. So you can never define magic. But like Alistair Crowley's art and science of causing change in conformity with the will is not a bad definition. And basically the idea that you can make things change in material existence through the immaterial stuff of through the immaterial stuff of like thinking or imagining, uh, representing something you can make that thing happen in real life. Do you feel that sort of stuff actually happens in D&D? Like you go on a go on a campaign and events that take place within the campaign kind of find a kind of mysterious resonance out there in the world? Um yeah, in in a way, yes. Um I've had a few uh when, when I was actually playing, not running the game but i was playing in this very good game master's game and he what he would do is he would have a bunch of solo threads so you'd you'd play with the group and then you'd have your own solo adventures on the side 
So he had a lot of time to devote to this. So I was playing a solo game once and a face appeared in the window, a very strange face, um, almost like a gray alien kind of face. Uh, and uh, no. that's not by any stretch of the imagination uh, a regular occurrence, nor do role players think of it that way at all. Yeah. Usually the, the magic circle that you create when you prepare and play the game is a, it's a very strong circle and it keeps the forces inside it but that doesn't mean the forces aren't there one thing i like i wanted to talk about and this kind of a it's a nice way for me to to, con- to conceptualize it so in dungeons and dragons you can play a wizard if you play a wizard you're a practitioner a kind of scholarly practitioner of of magic so you study spells you look for ancient tomes you open them, you study them, and then you you learn these spells and you can use them there are eight, I believe, schools of magic. So this magic is separated into different schools. There's necromancy, conjuration, evocation. There's one called illusion. And this is an interesting one because the school of illusion is, you'd think usually illusion is the opposite of magic. Illusion is uh, an event that looks- Yeah, like stage yeah, magic. It looks like magic, but it's not actually, there's nothing going on. Well, illusion in Dungeons and Dragons is very strange. An illusionist in Dungeons and Dragons is an actual wizard who creates things that aren't actually there. So he'll create uh, an image of a dragon, let's say, flying down towards a city. And there's no actual dragon there. It's just a kind of mirage. But the, his, as he becomes more and more experienced and, and knowledgeable, his illusions become more and more convincing to the point where at the end he can have a spell called permanent illusion, which is an illusion that will fool, fool all of your senses potentially forever. So, so what's the difference? It might as well actually exist. Exactly. It might as well, so in other words, in the Dungeons and Dragons ethos, in that world, an illusion is not something that is not real. It's a part of reality that is more or less than what it seems, but it is nonetheless real. Like, and to me, this is what the games are about. When you're playing a role-playing game, or for that matter, experiencing a work of art, but that's another story, what you're imagining is real. What I mean is that fantasy has its own ontology, its own place in in the real. And as a real event, it connects with the rest of the events in your life. So it's up to you to decide how the game connects to your life. But the connection is as viable as any other connection you would make because what you're creating together is a is a real imaginative event and uh, there are no illusions in Dungeons and Dragons there are only things that are not what they seem and i would say that if you look at things through that lens then the the idea, you can see the occult or magical dimension of the game itself in the real world like how it it is a kind of magical practice to, to engage in this type that's of really thing. interesting back to fighting in this case play that uh, kind of play fighting reminds me of something that I once wrote about professional wrestling so in my blog I wrote a thing about how the usual way that we talk about rationality is like things are rational or they're irrational and I'm interested in a kind of strange rationality I call it xeno rationality I, co- I love coining new words that's, uh, I like that word my that's thing. good 
Yeah, Zeno rationality, which is like rationality within the boundaries of something that itself is not a part of what we think of as the consensus reality. So like within those boundaries, you're acting in a manner that's at least comprehensible and like it makes sense. So this is all rather abstract. So I can give you an example. Uh, I'm not a professional wrestling fan at all. Um, uh, not at all. I, I mean, no offense to those who, who dig it. I'm used to people not <laughs> approving of the things I'm enthusiastic about. So far be <laughs> it for me to go disapproving of other people's enthusiasms. But, you know, when I was a kid, I was growing up in Sudbury, Ontario in the 70s and 80s. Uh, and it's, you know, it was like very isolated. I mean, no internet, right? And it's just like, it's kind of distant from, I mean, it's a five-hour drive to Toronto and on what was then just a two-lane road. Right. Yeah, Sudbury in the 70s, not that much to do. So me and my buddies, we would go down to the Sudbury Arena and watch professional wrestling. And this is in the pre-WWE days. This is back in the old, uh, the old circuit days. So there was a, a circuit in northern Ontario, Quebec, and the upper Midwest, which also, in some way that I never quite understood, had some crossover with another circuit in the Deep South. And so we were get, always getting these, I can't remember any of their names now, but we were always getting these incongruous um, Dixie wrestlers uh, in with the uh, fighting lumberjacks, like Big Joe LaDuke. I don't know if you ever heard of him. Yeah. I got to be spat on by Big Joe LaDuke. I was like very into that <laughs> when I was a kid. I had an experience with this that kind of gets maybe it's something that you're talking about here, a kind of xeno-rational experience. So people always say, well, how can you enjoy professional wrestling? It's fake. It's obviously fake. Yeah. It is and it isn't. Like, okay, so when I went, would go to these shows, you know, we always sat pretty close to the ring. And you could see the punches missing by like three inches. Like it was visible to me how the all the, the fighting was telegraphed. It was like punches are telegraphed. All the fighting is sort of pretend, right? Now, those guys actually go through hell because professional wrestling may not be actually a sporting contest, but it requires enormous athleticism. And those guys get injured a lot. In fact, it's a lot of sad stories um, to come out of professional wrestling of people who die young because it's so hard on the body. Yeah. So from that point of view, you say, well, professional wrestling is fake. And then, you know, wrestlers can say, well, the skull fracture I had last month, that, that wasn't fake, right? But right. the thing is, at the same time, you're aware that the fighting is, to some extent, not for real. And yet, in the moment, that makes very little difference. You're participating in a reality where Big Joe LaDuke just got pile-drived on the cement floor. Now, if you know anything about like how those kind of gimmicks are brought off, you know that like there's a way of doing a pile driver that doesn't hurt a guy or like if the guy doing it knows how to do it, it's actually kind of, I won't say safe, but it's, you know, it's not, it's not going to kill you. Right. Um, but that knowledge doesn't touch you at the moment that you're experiencing like, oh my God, Big Joe LaDuke's out on the cement floor and oh, what's, I don't know, a hawk from the Road Warriors. What he's he, oh my God, he's gonna pile drive him, and you're screaming, you know, because you're there with all of your friends, and you know, fifteen hundred lumberjacketed, frothing Northern Ontarians, all screaming, and we are all collaborating in that instant, 
in creating a reality in which Big Joe LeDuc is in mortal peril. He's about to get pile-drived into the cement. And, of course, we know on some level, especially the people who are, like, really into it, you know that it's not in some sense for real. But in that moment, you're creating this reality and you're acting within it in a way like it makes sense on the inside of this consensual shift in reality. It's almost like you're all dreaming together and agreeing on certain ways to act within that dream. Does yeah. that make any sense? Absolutely. And, and you're, you evoke the idea of, of the dream. Is, it's really good because that's what a dream – a dream sets its own rules. It's like when you write a script like, uh, or a, a novel. You, you set out the rules of the world that you're creating and you, live, you abide by those rules. They're not necessarily the rules of – of that you'll follow when you do your taxes. Uh, they're, the, they're the rules of that world. And that, that's, that kind of touches on, uh, we talked in our conversation before this about Johann uh, Heisinger, the, the historian who wrote Homo Ludens, um, very influential work. Um, and uh, there's a good quote in it, uh, which kind of gets to the heart of it. He says, all play moves and has its being within a playground marked off beforehand, either materially or ideally, deliberately or as a matter of course. Just as there is no formal difference between play and ritual, so the, quote, consecrated spot cannot be formally distinguished from the playground. The arena, the card table, the magic circle, the temple, the stage, the screen, the tennis court, the court of justice, etc. are all in form and function playgrounds, i.e. forbidden spots, isolated, hedged round, hollowed, uh, within which special rules obtain. All are temporary worlds within the ordinary world dedicated to the performance of an act apart. The, the seriousness or the reality of a moment is largely dependent on the context that's been projected around that moment and to give it substance. So an event that means nothing in one context will mean a whole lot in another. If I just happen to roll a die on a table outside of any game, it doesn't matter what I get, but it really, really matters if I've decided that a six means that my character dies and a one means he survives, you know, like the wrestling match isn't about people actually getting hurt. It's about the story of the fight itself. And that's where the reality of the moment resides. So an alien anthropologist coming down from outer space and looking at a wrestling match and figuring out that it's fake and pointing that out is missing the point of what the wrestling match is. He's not seeing the reality of what the wrestling match is. It's not about real fighting. Yeah. That's not what makes it real. Yeah. What makes it real is the illusion of fighting. That's right. You know, the, 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 it's like Zizek says, sometimes you're, you shouldn't be looking for the illusion in the reality. You should be looking for the reality in the illusion. Where is the real in this illusion? Mm. And uh, it's nice. There's another example I keep going back to, but you have like one romantic poet, you know, waxing, poetic about the beauty of the sunset and then this other fucking nerd coming up to point out to him that the sun doesn't set it's the earth that's turning you know like completely missing right. the point of what what the world is revealing <laughs> to us in a moment so so yeah and, and i think that the, and, and there's a lot to learn you play games you you go you go to wrestling matches and then when you think about it with a bit of an uh, you know, you kind of analyze it. You can start applying the same logic to various uh, situations in real life. There's a whole lot we th we take very seriously in in day to day life that, in fact, is just little games that have been designed for us to play. And uh, part of being a magician, I think, is to be able to step out of those games that that we've been we've been told are immutable aspects of the cosmos, whereas in fact they're just like 
completely contingent creations of a particular society or a particular historical moment. Well, you know, something that I think is tempting to say, following on Heisinger's discussion of like this sort of enchanted circle, I, I love this idea that the boundary is actually the most important part of the game. Right. Getting back to boxing, it's like, oh, yeah, the ropes. <laughs> What's the yeah. difference between just a brawl, you know, just like a, a like a, a street fight and a boxing match? It's not necessarily technique because there's certain kinds of fighters who are brawlers, right? It's the ropes and the rules. It's the ropes and the rules and the fact that there's a referee and who's enforcing them. But that sense of something being set off, you can say... Well, within the enchanted circle of the game, you can say, well, it's real to me, right? But it's not really real. I mean, like, you're not really an elf or whatever. You're, you're playing as an elf. When I exit the Sudbury Arena with my bros, and we go back to being, I don't know, just kind of normal kids, and we don't really believe that, you know, Big Joe Ledoux got piled pile-drived, pile-driven yeah. on the cement floor and, and had to go to the hospital. They always had this gimmick with they would bring out the backboard with the neck brace and, like, take him out. Right, And then, right. of course, you know that he was just taking it off in the back room and then, you know, it's on to the next stop in the circuit. They go up to Temiskaming or something and, and, you know, do the whole bit again. So you could sort of say, okay, then once the game is over, everything goes back to the way it was before. So you really didn't affect any change. You're just it's just pretend. But the thing that's interesting to me is that pretend, I don't like this just pretend, because there is a way that even when you have a good sort of enchanted circle going, when it's a firmly bounded game, and as you say, you know, for the most part, whatever happens in D&D stays within that boundary. There's a sense in which games do generate a reality that's durable. I can give you an example from history. Okay, so the book that I wrote, uh, Dig, touches for, I mean, briefly on a now obscure countercultural revolutionary group called the White Panther Party. And they were formed, actually, they went through a bunch of different names, Trans Love Energies, White Panther Party, uh, Rainbow, Co no, wait, what was it? The Rainbow People's Party. It was basically a group of hippies around the poet, and I guess I'd say sort of like a hippie entrepreneur named John Sinclair, who lived in Detroit. And then he and his quote unquote tribe uh, moved out to Ann Arbor at a certain point. And through the late 60s into the early 70s, Sinclair was just sort of everywhere and constantly forming new groups or changing the names of his groups or whatever. But the group was always a bunch of hippies living in a ramshackle house in Ann Arbor. And I remember when I was first starting encountering this group, like they had a lot to do with music, which is one reason why they're interesting to me. They, for a while, were closely associated with the Detroit band, the MC5. You know, when I was reading like manifestos that were published in the countercultural press of the time, Sinclair would write stuff about how sex, drugs, and rock and roll would make the revolution? Because that was a big question, right, in the late 60s. What would bring about the revolution? Uh, the capital R revolution, where capitalism would be washed away like a sandcastle as the tide comes in. And what would happen would be afterwards is everybody would be free somehow, right? Right. Um, 
how's the revolution going to arrive? And every for a while, every little radical group had their own, uh, they had their critique, right? They had their analysis where they would say, oh, well, you have to go with the, uh, the Maoist version of, you know, or you have to go with the, uh, the Peruvian Shining Path version or Tupamaru version or whatever version of what revolution is or how it's going to arrive. And, you know, Sinclair's group or groups, uh, the White Panther Party was the most militant version of it, is basically trying to model itself on the Black Panther Party. At the height of their militants, they believed that ingesting large quantities of acid, listening to high-energy music like the MC5, and, you know, just like having a lot of sex, that would in some way bring about the revolution. And you can look at that and say, how... Okay, really? <laughs> you know, <laughs> Sinclair Sinclair liked to say that that ramshackle house in Ann Arbor was like a liberated territory. They liked to imagine, they called them, would call themselves a nation and like to sort of cherish the idea that they were an autonomous nation in the belly of the beast, the beast being the United States. And when I first started encountering these things, I was still in graduate school and I was, I remember reading about these guys. I remember talking to my advisor, a guy named Michael Sherlin, who had sort of been around at that time, not in the White Panther Party circles, but he he kind of remembered what it was like in the late 60s. And I remember saying, I can't believe that Sinclair or anybody in that group were really sincere, because who could believe this? You know, this idea that somehow believing that revolution was already here would somehow make it so. And I remember Michael saying gently to me, he's like, well, maybe it's hard to believe now, but a lot of us believed it at the time. And that really gave me pause to think because the, the easy interpretation that's just sitting there for you is to say, bunch of posers, they don't really believe it. They're just bullshitting. They're just pretending. They're just, it's a lot of wild talk intended to make them look cool, but you cannot possibly believe their critique of like, uh, how rock and roll would somehow single-handedly destroy capitalism, like that, can, that cannot be attempted to be believed. And you can say, like, you didn't live in an autonomous nation in the belly of the beast. You lived in this hippie flop house in Ann Arbor, for fuck's sake. But <laughs> the thing is, though, yeah, but for several years, they lived together, did drugs together, had sex together. They lived in this world where they were living out the revolution. Like for them, sex, drugs, and rock and roll was the revolution. You might say that this was an illusion, but it was a consensual illusion, something they all worked together to create, to produce. And they lived within it for several years. Like it took years before finally this movement sort of ran out of steam or turned into something else. And you can say, well, where where's the revolution? The revolution existed for them. They were yeah. living it. You know, yeah. they, if you play a game long enough, it stops being a game. It simply becomes your life. And so when you say that you get together with friends that you've been on campaigns with and what you remember is never the material, physical circumstances in which the campaigns took place. Like you don't remember whose living room you were playing in. But you remember every detail of, of these fantastical events that you played out. In a certain sense, in a xenorational sense, 
those things actually happen to you, or at least that reality is far more vivid and important and has had more real material effects in real life than the living rooms that you actually, I mean, that you actually did these games in. I mean, right. one manifestation is we're having this conversation right now. Exactly. And it, it seems to me that who you are is not uh, exclusively, obviously, but in some large degree, who you are now at age 40, J.F. Martel, filmmaker, writer, intellectual man about town, <laughs> you've been made by those imaginary experiences. Exactly. Like those have been as much of an aspect of the J.F. Martel Bildung as anything that happened in the so-called real world. Yeah. You remind me of Deleuze there again. Uh, Deleuze always insisted that revolutions can fail every time, but it doesn't stop. It's kind of what we were talking about at the beginning. It has no effect on their power, their inherent power. What matters isn't the success of a revolution, because the success of a revolution is the death of the spirit that drives it. The triumph of a revolution is the becoming revolutionary of the event itself. So what matters mm -hmm. is that moment where the game is being played. And through that game, you are lifted out of a kind of like a predetermined system of ruts and, and that you're supposed to operate in. You transcend a particular historical moment and you create something whose ramifications and effects are not calculable in terms of the logic of the revolution itself. So the revolution might fail, but it will bring new things into being. New things will become possible because of it, even though it fails. Uh, the What do they call the White Panthers? The world they created for themselves is no, no more hallucinatory than the idea of the United States of America. You know, a nation state is also just a make-believe entity. But yeah. you could say that, but it's also very real. You know, so mm -hmm. if if the United yeah. States as a as a as a nation state can exist as a purely imaginary construct, which it is, but still have reality, then every little bit of imagining should have its share of the real. So even a game played among friends around a table has at least as much reality, potentially, as um, the idea of a nation state or other imaginary constructs that basically frame out our lives and give it context and meaning. There's a lot of our world that exists only in the, imag the imagination. That's not an argument against any of those things. It's an argument for the reality of the imagination and for the power of the imagination. So I don't know if this is going to be a new feature on Weird Studies. Uh maybe with some kind of like listener mail, maybe with a soundboard effect. Listener mail. We'll just, we'll just, that, that was it. We'll just have that. There we, okay. okay. <laughs> there it is. We got a great message. We got our first bit of listener mail this last week from Stephen Trothan. I hope I'm saying that name correctly. And a thoughtful and comprehensive email, which I'm not going to read out in its fullness. I'm going to focus on one particular bit. And in it, uh, Stephen is responding to our episode about Lisa Ruddock's essay, When Nothing is Cool, and sort of to paraphrase a question that Stephen sort of sets in. He doesn't actually ask it as a question. It's sort of a comment. But he's just sort of remarking that whatever interest we might have, like on this show, and presumably among our listeners or some of them, interests in self-care, mental health awareness and advocacy, meditation, kind of stuff we were talking about in our Lisa Ruddock episode. 
that those interests are at odds with the ideological forces, the pushes and pulls, the tugs of the academic ideology or that's ideology of academic cool that we're talking about in our last episode. And it's kind of hard to know where to position yourself in such a way that we can even have a conversation about these kinds of things. So, I mean, one obvious way that this goes is you say, I think that academia is a sometimes a cold, harsh, and uncaring place. And let's start caring a little bit more. Everybody is instantly going to get very suspicious of you and either deliver a shower of mockery at... Uh, caring <laughs> like and, yeah. and I know what I'm talking about actually there's a, a colleague in the in the business and musicology who's sort of a friend of mine William Chang who wrote a book called Just Vibrations and it came out last year I think 2017 doesn't matter anyway relatively <clears throat> recent book where he makes exactly this argument he talks about the ways that academia can be kind of inimical to healthy mind, healthy body. Well, well let, let, and, me, let me stop you there for a second, though, because yeah. uh, right now in the news, there's an, like a, this other side of academia that's getting a lot of attention, and that's this, um, this extreme concern for how people feel, how students feel, how certain minority groups feel when presented with certain narratives or certain ideas. But is that an instance you would think of the same fundamental ideological callousness, or is this uh, development a, a step in the right direction? A, a positive step. Right. Well, that's actually the big question that I think Will Chang got caught up in, that when his book came out, he suffered some rather rude remarks from this guy named Norman Lebrecht, who's sort of a classical music critic troll, making fun of Care Bears and musicology. And this is what I mean, the shower of mockery. Um, mm. that will attend anybody trying to talk about values of caring and compassion and looking out for people. So that's one thing that happens. But another thing that happens is a somewhat well-founded suspicion of people who are applying a politics of personal feelings. Like, I demand that you that such-and-so professor be fired because... You know, she made it weird there for a second. She said something that made me feel uncomfortable. She said something that offended me. And the only way that we can make this right is for this person to be hounded by a Twitter mob and made to resign her position or whatever. This kind of thing has happened quite a bit of late. And it's been in the news. And, you know, of course, when things get in the news, they get twisted around and distorted and it becomes a political football so all chance of any kind of reasonable and balanced presentation of the issue becomes basically impossible but let's just say yeah there's been a certain amount of bad behavior enabled by almost a cult of feeling in academia and so I think some of my colleagues greeted Will's book with hostility and suspicion because they thought well here's another kind of academic hypocrite, somebody who is going to come and tell us to care and be compassionate or else, right? Because mm -hmm. that's something that you do see sometimes. People are like, yeah, be caring, compassionate, inclusive, diverse, or else bad things are going to happen to you. And it's unfortunate because if you actually know Will, you know that that's like the last thing he's interested in, that 
he really did want to just start a good conversation about the, the ethics of the profession. Mm. So actually that whole story kind of gives you a sense of how difficult it can be to have that conversation because even if you just start off by saying, I think we should be nicer to each other, everybody is going to start off. Like the first step is going to be to question your motives because after all, that's what we've been taught to do for generations now, this hermeneutics of suspicion, right? So when you get somebody who's like, I don't know about this hermeneutics of suspicion, maybe there's an alternative. What's the first thing that's going to happen to them? They get treated to an industrial dose of the hermeneutics of suspicion. Yeah, right, right. All of which makes it sound like I'm being very, I don't know, very pessimistic about the opportunities of having the kind of conversation that Stephen and certainly I would like there to be in academia. All I can say is from a personal point of view, like, you know, my own answer to that is doing what we're doing right now, recording a podcast. Uh, I've said to you, JF, a number of times, actually it's a line that I read in uh, like Andrew WK, the, the, the pop metal guy, the party guy. In his Twitter feed, he once tweeted out, if you can't find the party, be the party. And those are kind of words I live by. For me, the kinds of conversation that I wanted to see happen in academia, they do happen, but they happen fitfully. They happen often in private. They happen, I think, under a state of duress or conditions of duress. People are under pressure and stressed out and tense around these issues. And so, like, just starting a podcast actually for me was like a pretty important way to address those feelings of like, ugh, you know, there's a conversation that I want to have and we're not having it. If you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel. Thank you for listening. Thank you.